The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You guys are just joining us. Uh, we just started going through the book of Luke about three weeks ago. Uh, it's been great. We're going to be in Luke for, uh, what is it, uh, 16 years, I think, is what we're planning. So, no, it's not going to be that long. Uh, if anybody needs a Bible, go and throw your hand up and we'll get one to you. Uh, hey, while you're turning there, I just want to... Uh, kind of clue you guys in on a few things going on here at Heritage. Um, First thing is, if you guys um, are able to make it out on October 1st here, uh, it's just going to be a normal Sunday, but we're bringing in a guest speaker, uh, Hunter Beaumont. And let me tell you, this guy is a fantastic gospel preacher. I heard him teach uh, maybe a couple years ago now at the Acts 29 conference. He did a fantastic job. He's a, a powerful communicator. And so we're bringing him in to bless you guys. Uh, he's a pastor in Denver, uh, Denver in Acts 29 church. So um, if you're able to be here that Sunday, uh, let's pack this place out for that. Also, um, I don't know if you guys know, but Jeremy Neff, Pastor Jeremy, took over recently the men's uh, ministry um, and is, is doing that. So he's planning a fall retreat for the guys in Sun River that's coming up. The dates for that are October 27th through the 29th. Um, guys, this is going to be a killer retreat. Uh, Jeremy was talking to me about some of the content that he has planned and uh, showed me the house that they rented. It's going to be really cool. So get signed up for that, Connect Desk or online. Um, but you definitely want to get, there's only so many spots for that. So be, uh, be diligent on that. And then lastly, uh, you guys might have noticed when you came in through the, the foyer, 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 which, which one is it, guys? Foyer, everyone says foyer. Okay, when you came in the foyer, um, Brent thinks it's foyer, right? But he's from the South, what's he know? Okay, so everything sounds different in his world. So out there, there's a bunch of tables. What we're going to do after, uh, after this service, we did it after the last service, is um, Anyone interested in volunteering at Heritage? I don't know if you guys know, but it takes an immense amount of work to get all of this stuff up and running. We're a mobile church, which means we're kind of living at someone else's house. So we have to do their dishes when we're done and things like that. So um, if anyone is interested in helping uh, the family of Heritage and volunteering and serving, there's all kinds of information and people you can talk to out there today. We're doing a volunteer recruitment fair and there's candy, guys. So, you know, go get some candy. I don't know if there's C's, but maybe, probably. I would go check. Uh, yeah, go get some candy. Talk to, to somebody about, about serving. And that's, that's it. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to get into the word. Father, I just pray you quiet our hearts. I pray you give us submissive hearts. Lord, everything in me doesn't want to submit to you. God, I, I have this fallen nature that, that I inhabit. I'm in this body that, that is by nature at war with you, God. But you've given me this new heart. You've given us this new heart, God, that has desire to hear from you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak past our flesh and speak into our new heart. Bring truth, Lord, we need it. We are so lied to in this world. And Father, I pray that my insufficiency this morning would not get in the way of us seeing your sufficiency. That my weakness would only give more attention to your greatness. God, we want to submit ourselves under your authority, under your word, under your scripture, because we know that it is true. And we believe you, God. So I pray this morning specifically that people would be released from the burden of the law this morning and that we would be free to live in power and in peace 
knowing that the gospel is completed and finished. Lord, we just love you and we invite you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to open up this morning by, by posing a question to you guys, and I'll explain a little bit what it means uh, because it'll seem confusing. But uh, let me say, by the way, that this sermon this morning is not for you guys. It's for me. Uh, everything I'm going to preach this morning, I'm preaching it myself. Um, and if it blesses you and if you're feeling the way I'm feeling in life, then that's great. Um, but if I get passionate, it's because this is what I need to hear. <laughs> It's what I need to hear. Here is the question that I would like to ask you guys, and I'd like you to write it down if you have something to write down with. I'd like you to think about it through the course of this teaching, uh, and hopefully by the end, God will um, kind of maybe show you some areas uh, that you can work on. The question is this. Am I currently living in a state of chronic gospel deficiency, or am I living in a state of gospel clarity? Am I living in a state of gospel deficiency or gospel clarity? Well, what is, what is gospel deficiency? Let me unpack this question a little bit for you. What is gospel deficiency? Gospel deficiency uh, is kind of like this. The gospel is like nutrition. It's like food. Well, we don't think of it like food, but it is. It's, it's something uh, like food that we must continually ingest. We need it. Uh, we need it every couple hours. As Americans, we don't go more than a couple hours without food, right? That's just how we roll. Um, so we eat lots of food. And we think of food rightly. We think of it as a source of life. It's how we grow. It's how we exist. It's how we get through the day. If we don't eat, we get cranky, right? Um, if we don't eat, our body, our body lets us know. So, hey, it's time to eat, Okay. The gospel is like nutrition. It's something that we need, and we need it often. It's something that we need, we need it every single day. And not just every day, we need it every minute, every hour, every second. We need to be reminded of the gospel. But we don't treat it like nutrition. We treat it like something that we do annually. We treat it like a dental cleaning visit. Like, man, it's probably about time for me to get in and get my teeth cleaned. Or we treat it, probably more often than not, we treat it like a chiropractic appointment. Uh, man, I'm a little bit out of alignment. Maybe I should go back to the gospel. Um, and and it, sh- it is good for that, right? Or we treat it like a, like a, a treatment for something that's just severe. Okay, when I was, when I was a sin, uh, sinful person before I got saved, I got the gospel and that fixed me and now I move on to other things. It's time to move on to more Christian principles. The gospel was just the thing that I got saved by and now I live out a Christian life. That is not the intent of the gospel. It's not the design of the gospel. Because the gospel was designed to be something that you need, have to have every moment, every second. In our culture, um, using the, the, the analogy of food again, if I can, in our culture, we eat lots of food. But the food that we eat usually doesn't have much nutrition in it. So we don't understand why we feel terrible all the time. You have a big plate of biscuits and gravy for breakfast, and that was a lot of calories and a lot of girth, right, in that food. And you're like, man, I'm so full. And then by 10 o'clock, you're napping (laughs) because there was no nutrition in that. It was big. It was full. It was robust. But man, there was nothing there. We approach the Christian life the same way. We feast on Christian things. We feast on things of Christian subculture and nature. We, we, we do Christian disciplines. We do Christian activity. But if there's no gospel in it, then there's no nutrition. If going to church, going to church is great. 
But if you do not find a way to believe the gospel there and are not reminded of the gospel there, then you're simply feasting on empty calories. The gospel is the thing that Christians need to survive. Gospel deficiency is failing to live in response to and belief in the gospel. Okay, well, what is gospel clarity? Gospel clarity is the answer to gospel deficiency. Gospel clarity is living in constant belief of the gospel. Now, this is not an external resolve. It's not uh, simply um, doing more Christian discipline type things. Gospel clarity is a mindset. It's choosing to believe something and allowing everything that you do in your life to be shaped by that belief. Let me give you an example of both gospel clarity and gospel deficiency. So yesterday, um, sitting in my office and I'm preparing for this sermon, and I don't know if you guys, you know, ever think about this, but it's terrifying standing up here in front of hundreds of people, Um, you know, and no matter how many times I do it, I'm up here every week, uh, I still, it still terrifies me. And so I'm like, laboring over my sermon, rightly so. I'm like, God, I want to get your word right. I want this sermon to be, to be powerful. I want it to set people free. And I'm working on my sermon. As I'm working on my sermon and feeling this pressure, and as I'm typing away, I, I'm, I'm unpacking the gospel in this sermon, and I'm going, wow, God, you're so good. You're so good, and you're, you're so enough for me. And as I'm, I'm unpacking the gospel and I'm writing it into my notes, it's washing over me like water and it's releasing me from this, this anxiety and this tension that I'm feeling over preaching the next day. And I, I find myself in this moment of just total peace. Why? Nothing changed, circumstantially. Still got to preach the next day. Life's still hard. There's still things I'm worried about, still things I'm stressed about. What changed? Well, nothing changed on the exterior. What changed is that I chose in that moment to believe something, and by believing it, I was fed. And it changed my perspective. It changed my surroundings, but it changed my perspective. So that's all great. I'm feeling really good. This really transcendent moment. Oh, God, you're so good. I'm just so happy. Everything's good. And then 10 minutes later, I do something to my notes that I'm typing up, and I totally botch them. And like the formatting is all jacked. And all of a sudden, this is over here and this is over there. And I'm like missing content that it was supposed to be there. And I start freaking out. And I spend two hours trying to get my sermon back into the right format and get the fonts the right size and get the margins right and all this kind of stuff. And I totally get in the weeds of my self. And while I'm doing that, all this anxiety is like rushing back in and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this message is going to be terrible and no one's going to know what I'm talking about and then I'm going to lose my job and everyone's going to hate me and oh my gosh, and I'm just letting all of this stress come in. Now, nothing has changed about my circumstances. I've still got to preach tomorrow. The only thing that's changed is I let go of a truth for a moment and I believed a lie. I let go of the truth that Jesus is enough for me that I don't need to be the best preacher in the world to be happy, because I never will. What I need is Jesus. I let go of that, and I hold on to this lie. We need the gospel. We need it every second, right? We need it like nutrition. Why do we need gospel clarity? We need gospel clarity because, guys, listen, we are wired for the law. Everything in you likes the law. Okay, we know as good Christians, we know theologically that law, okay, nope, it's not law anymore, it's grace. We know that. 
But we don't live like that. Do you guys know we live in a world that is completely full of laws? We live in a world that every single thing that you do, every single action that you take, every single word that you say has an effect. Everything that you do in your life is depending on your performance. If you perform, then something happens. Let me, let me impact that. So you get up in the morning, and you better get to work on time. doesn't matter if you want to get to work on time. You get to work because the law is if you don't show up to work, you get in trouble. If you don't get to show up to work again, you get fired. You get in your car and you drive, and the law is I have to drive a speed limit. If I don't drive a speed limit, I get a ticket. You get to work, you better perform. If you don't perform, you're not going to succeed in your career. Then you get off work and you come home, and your marriage, that's performance-driven too. I'm sorry, but it is. You better perform. It's a covenant. It's a two-sided covenant. If you go cheat on your wife and run away or cheat on your husband and run away, they're gone. That's a performance relationship. With your kids, it's a performance relationship. Man, i got to be a good dad. If I'm not a good dad, my kids are going to grow up twisted. Well, they're going to do that anyways. I can't help that. But I feel that pressure, right? I live in that pressure. It's like law, performance-based living. Every second, every millisecond of my day is law. You better perform. You better measure up. You better love your wife right. You better love your kids right. You better do your job well. You better not screw up. Now that's real life. We tell our kids, right? You get a job or you don't eat. That's the Proverbs tells us that that's wisdom. But that is not the gospel. It's not. The gospel is the one thing, Christian, that you have in your life that is not performance-based. Praise God. Because I'm tired. I'm tired of things that are performance-based. And when I live in a state of anxiety, it is because I am choosing to believe law rather than gospel. Gospel clarity is saying every second of every day, I am going to live like I believe that Jesus is enough for me. Like I believe that it is finished, that it is done. Christians, and and hear me on this, (laughs) Christians are like a bunch of fat, skinny people. Okay, let me explain that before you get offended. Uh, there's people, and, and, and you can read about this, okay, there's people that are skinny, but they're actually, their, their fat content is really high. I had, I had a roommate like this when I was in college age. He was like the skinniest guy. He ate Hot Pockets every day. And like, you would never think he was unhealthy, but he was like the most unhealthy person that I knew. He was a fat, skinny person. On the inside, he was a fat guy. On the outside, he was a skinny guy. Okay, as Christians, we fill ourselves We fill ourselves with all of these Christian activities. On the outside, we look really healthy. On the inside, we are screaming for nutrition, the nutrition of the gospel. Sam, what does that have to do with the book of Luke? Glad that you asked me that question. Um, Zechariah, the the story we're going to look at this morning is about Zechariah, a guy that you probably aren't super familiar with because he has a pretty short little blip in the scriptures. Uh, You probably know him as John the Baptist's dad. Just like I'm Mila's dad, and at some point that's all I'm going to be, man, is I'm just Mila's dad. I'm not Sam anymore like, oh, you're Mila's dad. Um, he is John the Baptist's dad, okay? And, and in this story, we pick up essentially him um, after John the Baptist is born. 
So what I want to do is I want to give you three points this morning for how to achieve gospel clarity. Three points on how to achieve gospel clarity, and we're going to use this text to, to, to take a look at each of those. The first point, if you're a note taker, first point is believe the gospel. Seems obvious. It's a good one, though. Believe the gospel. So, what has happened up to this point? Zachariah and Elizabeth are an old couple, okay? They, they're advanced in years. Uh, Zachariah is a priest, so his job is ministry. Um, but he was a priest, and he lived sort of, in a, in a outside, of a, outside of Jerusalem. So he gets the, the lottery, comes up, it's his turn to go into Jerusalem and, and to get to go in and burn incense in the temple. Now this is like a really big deal, okay? This is like the highlight of his career. And it, it took him his whole life to get here. He's an old man. He's probably been a priest for a long time. And now, finally, it's his turn to go into Jerusalem and to, to burn the incense. And this is a little bit of review, okay? So he goes in, and um, as he's doing that, something happens, okay? Something happens. And let me pause you right there. I want to ask the question, what changed in Zechariah? okay? What changed in Zechariah? He goes into the temple um, and he's burning incense, and, and all of a sudden an angel appears to him. And this angel starts telling him about how him and his wife are going to have a son, and the son is going to be named John, and he is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, this spirit of Elijah that the Old Testament talks about. Um, and his reaction is really interesting. His reaction is completely like, uh, are you sure? I mean, my wife and I are pretty old. I don't really see how that could happen. And that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. His reaction is a reaction of unbelief. And so the angel is like, well, um, I'm an angel, so yes, it's going to happen. And because you don't believe me, I'm going to take away your speech. I'm going to make you not able to speak until the, baby, until the baby comes. So he comes out of the temple, and he's trying to explain to everybody through sign language, you know, of, of what just happened and all this kind of stuff. Then we come on and we pick it up uh, later, later in Luke, and essentially it's been nine months now, okay? It's been nine months, and the baby comes. So look at verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And then they all wondered. Okay, here's what's happening. Nothing has changed under the sun. Uh, you tell, you, you get pregnant, and um, trust me, I know I have kids all the time. It's like what I do. Um, well, my wife has them. So anyways, you get pregnant, and everyone wants to know what's the name going to be. You know, and you tell them, and then everybody has an opinion. Like, oh, are you sure? Like, you want to do that? We, we just had a third baby, and her name is Scout. And I love that name. I've wanted a baby Scout. It had to be a girl. I wanted a baby Scout for like three years. Randy and I both just, we love that name for a girl. And so we name her Scout, and everybody, uh, some, some people in an older generation have a really funny reaction to that. Because <laughs> they're kind of like, wait, is that like her nickname? I'm like, nope, that's her name. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, you could just tell they're not, they're not in it. So this is what's happening. The community around uh, Zachary and Elizabeth are like, um, okay, so what are you going to name him? And they're like, we're naming him John. And they're like, why? 
that's not socially appropriate. You should name him Zachariah. That makes more sense. No one in your name, family is named John. But this is a really profound moment for Zachariah and Elizabeth because this is their opportunity to now say, uh, yeah, actually, this isn't our kid. God gave us this kid, and we're naming him John because that means he's God's. He is not here for us. He is here to usher in Christ. He is here to usher in Messiah. So uh, Zechariah grabs the pen and he writes down, no, his name is John. Now this is a defining moment. Immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. All of a sudden, Zechariah, in a moment of obedience, stands for what God said to do, and then his mouth is loose. He can talk again. And as soon as he can talk, he bursts into this prophecy, which we're going to look at. And guys, this is a cool passage. This is a rad passage. Zechariah, for the first time, in 400 years, prophesies. He prophesies the truth of God. God speaks through him. And this is interesting because it's an Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament. So it's very Old Testament sounding, but it's New Testament content. It's New Testament, New Covenant theology. Super interesting. But what I want you to notice here is the difference in Zechariah here from, the, from what we saw in Zechariah before. In the temple, he was very hesitant to believe what the angel was telling him. Now he's full-on proclaiming, no, his name's John, here is the word of God, here's what's going to happen. He's commissioning his son, John the Baptist, into this role. What changed in Zechariah? He got gospel clarity. He went from being in gospel deficiency to being in gospel clarity. Zechariah was a priest, right? So he knew. He knew, what was, he knew the truth. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Old Covenant. He understood the promises of God. He was familiar with them. He studied them. That was his life's work. But even though he knew the truth, when he goes into the temple and the angel appears to him, for some reason what he knows doesn't seem to be belief. Even though he understands Everything God said, when the angel comes and starts proclaiming truth, he goes, no, no, that can't be it. Why? Because he knew the truth, he didn't believe the truth. And there is a difference. Okay, you can know the gospel, but that doesn't mean that you believe the gospel. You can be familiar with the gospel, that doesn't mean that you believe the gospel. What God is trying to do in all of us, and what God did in Zechariah here, is he took something that was in his mind, and he pressed it down about a foot and a half into his heart. He took what, something that Zechariah knew. Zechariah had biblical knowledge. He knew the Old Testament. He understood the scriptures. But yet, when God manifests himself through an angel in reality, he doesn't believe it enough to act. So God had to literally, through nine months of being quiet, God had to take what was in Zechariah's head and move it into his heart. That's what gospel clarity is. It's going from knowing the gospel to believing it in a way that affects you and changes you. We know it affected him. We know it changed him because immediately he stood for God's word. He said, no, his name's John. And let me tell you what he's going to do. Different man, different guy. Something happened in him. 
So what did Zechariah believe? What was it that he believed? I want to look at this prophecy now that he gives. And this is amazing. There's some incredible stuff here. We're not going to be able to get into all of it, but I want to highlight a few things. What did Zechariah believe? If our first point is to believe the gospel, what did he believe? He believed, firstly, the surety of God's promises. Look at verse 69. Here's what Zechariah says. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Pause there. Zechariah is pulling everyone's attention back to a promise that God made to a man named David. Horn of salvation, by the way, is a, it's a symbol of power. He's saying that there is a horn of salvation coming. Who is? Come on, guys. Who is? He's coming, and his coming shows that God was serious when he told David that he would establish a lineage through him that would last forever. God promised David. He said, David, through your line, buddy, through your line is going to come the Messiah. Through your line is going to come a king that will sit on the throne forever. And Zechariah is pointing back to this. He's saying, here it is. <laughs> After hundreds of years, here it is. God is faithful. He's doing what he said he was going to do through the line of the house of the servant David. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Now he's drawing back to the prophets. Not only did God do what he said he would do through David, he's doing what he said he would do through the prophets. Through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, through all of these, through Daniel. God spoke this message to the prophets of this new kingdom. God spoke the message of this prophets of salvation and redemption for Israel. And they're sitting in captivity under Babylon and then under uh, other nations time and time again. And the prophets would bring this message of redemption. God's going to redeem us. God's going to redeem us. And they waited and they waited. And after hundreds of years, finally, here it is. Zechariah says it's here. The redemption is here. He is believing the surety of God's promises. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. God did not forget. Now, to us, we're like, okay, yeah, that's a great point. Guys, 400 years, not hearing from the Lord. And here it is. Zechariah goes, oh, I guess God didn't forget about us. I guess he actually remembered. <laughs> because God redeems when he says he will redeem. He redeems when he says he will redeem. He does not break promises. He has never broken promises. He never will break promises. Zechariah also believes in this, and this is, this is the main one. Zechariah believed in the sufficiency of Christ's work. He believed in the sufficiency of Christ's work. Take a look at verse 68. This is, there's a key here I want you to see. As he's prophesying, he opens up the prophecy by saying this, and, and it you can miss it if you don't look. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he, what? Has visited and redeemed his people. He's talking about it as though it's been done. He's not saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he will redeem. That's what the prophets of old said, right? Someday, God's going to redeem us. No, he says he has visited and redeemed. Zechariah 
through this prophecy, has an understanding and an assurance of the finished work of Christ Jesus. That even though Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, he is already confident that God will do what he has said he will do and is relying on the finished work of God. Now, you would expect, after 400 years of silence, that the first person to bring a prophecy would bring something to the effect of, Israel, it's time to get your act together. Right? Covenant, law. Come on, Israel. It's time to get your act together. Seriously, you've got to serve God the way that you're supposed to. You've got to hold up your end of the covenant. That's not what happens here. It's not what happens. Well, you say, well, maybe, maybe Israel was doing really well at that time. Maybe, maybe they merited the favor of God at this point. Okay, well, go read about how Jesus reacted when he went into the temple and tell me if you think Israel was doing a good job at holding up their end of the covenant. They weren't. Israel was as bad at holding up their end of the covenant in Jesus' day as they were in the beginning. Let me ask you this. How long do you think it would have taken Israel to finally hold up their end of the covenant? How long do you think, I mean, do you think 2,000 years, 3,000 years? Do you think Jesus never would have come and prophets just kept, kept coming and, and calling Israel to repentance? Come on, Israel, come on, repent, Israel, come on, you can do this. After 2,000, maybe 3,000, maybe 4,000 years, do you think Israel finally maybe would have come around and started obeying the Lord? They never would have. Any more than you and I ever would have turned to God on our own. They never would have. What Zechariah is proclaiming here is not, okay, Israel, it's time to get your act together and start obeying so that we can be saved. He's saying, hey, Israel, it's done. The redemption that has been promised from our fathers through the prophets is here. It is done. It's not something we work towards. It's something that has been done. We believe it. He speaks of it as though it is finished. I have to ask you guys, how long are you going to live like you have what it takes until you, like Israel here, realize that God has redeemed you already, that God has already made provision for your weakness? How long? How long am I going to continue to think that I have what it takes to get through my day and that if I just buck up and if I just, just, just try harder that I can somehow manage to be a better person than I was five minutes ago or five years ago? How long are we going to hold on to that lie until we let go of it and say, nope, I am insufficient? Zechariah believed in the sufficiency of Christ's work. He believed that what Jesus was going to accomplish would be enough for Israel. It was just in and of itself. It would be enough. And let me ask you, moms, when will your kids be healthy enough and smart enough and cared for enough for you to feel like you're a good enough mom? Never. You're never going to feel that. And you are, most of you are killing yourselves, trying to be a good enough mom, trying to be a good enough wife, trying to be a good enough Christian, pretending that you're sufficient when you're not. The finished work of Christ starts with recognizing your own insufficiency 
Israel could not save themselves, so Christ saved them. Dads, when will you feel like you're a good enough father? You're never going to, because guess what? You're not. You never will be. But Christ is sufficient for your weaknesses. When will you stop trying to be Jesus to your kids and trust Jesus to be Jesus to your kids? Not that we shouldn't be Jesus to our kids. Business owners, when will your business be good enough? When will you stop killing yourself trying to prove that you are sufficient? Trying to prove that you can do it, that you can make your business work. It's finished in Christ. Everything that you need is there. We can have businesses, but we don't look to them. Pastors, pastors, when will your church be big enough to validate your existence? Never. Ever. I go to conferences, and I know these guys love Jesus, but occasionally I, I just pick up this feeling of, well, how big is your church? How big is your church? This feeling of trying to, to, to find sufficiency. You know what that is? It's a failure to believe the gospel. If I believe the gospel, it doesn't matter how much I accomplish. If I believe the gospel, it doesn't matter whether my sermon turns out really good or really bad. What matters is that Christ is enough and I have peace in that. If you believe the gospel, it doesn't matter whether you're the perfect mom, the perfect spouse, the perfect dad, the perfect worker, because Christ is enough. He's enough. You can let yourself off the hook. Those of you who are ashamed of who you are, when will you do enough beating yourself up before you forgive yourself for what Christ has already forgiven you for? Shame is a failure to believe the gospel. Guilt is a failure to believe the gospel. God uses that to bring us to the cross, but living in it perpetually is saying, I don't believe the gospel. I believe in my own shame and I'll live in it. And I'll pay penance until I feel like my conscience is, is gone. It'll never go away. You'll always feel guilty. Those of you hiding sin, that is a failure to believe the gospel. It's a failure to trust God that he can fix this in you. He can deal with that. That's not too big for him. Hiding it is saying, I can fix it. And you can't. You're insufficient. Let God fix it. It's finished. He's done it. It's enough. And not only, those are all personal things, but how long, guys, how long are we going to burden others with our own insufficiency? Placing our expectations on other people. Being frustrated with our spouse, frustrated with our kids, frustrated with our friends because they aren't what we want. When in reality, it's our own insufficiency that we're frustrated with. It's a failure, failure to believe the gospel. A spouse that is holding her, her husband or holding his wife in, in, in contempt, not forgiving them because they have not been forgiven themselves. And we can't forgive others until we allow the gospel to actually do a work in ourselves and go, I am a sinner. I am more fallen than my spouse. And I can forgive them because I've been forgiven. That's believing the gospel. That's gospel clarity. That's the sufficient work of Christ being enough for my sin and for your sin. If your kids don't measure up, they don't grow up to be what you want to be, and you pressure them, that's a failure to believe the gospel. Your kids don't have to be what you expect them to be. Christ is enough. It is finished. And this is what Zechariah is proclaiming. He has redeemed us. He has visited us. It's good news. 
Guys, we have to scream this at ourselves every day because everything in you doesn't want to believe it. Everything in you would rather just live in your guilt and live in your condemnation and live in the law. We like it, but it is killing us. We have to live in light of the gospel. We know grace in our minds, but we live law in our lives, don't we? We know grace in our minds. I can get up here and I can say the gospel and you guys say, yes, I agree with you, Sam. But then you go out the door and instantly walk into an action that proves that you're believing the law. The gospel needs to permeate every part of our life. Every small part, every big part, every part of our life. Zechariah also points out the superiority of the new covenant. Look at verse 74, the second half. He says that we, being derived, sorry, delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. Man, Zechariah had this way beyond his scope. He had this clarity to see what it was going to look like to serve God in this new covenant. And it was superior to the old covenant. He said it's finished in Christ, and what it's going to look like is this. We're going to be able to, number one, serve him without fear. In the new covenant, it's better. We don't have to live under the, the wrath of God because it's been absorbed by the person of Christ Jesus. Believing the gospel is saying, I believe that there is no wrath for me, that it has been taken care of. Not only is there no fear, he says there's no Lack of holiness. He says we'll live in, without fear and we will live in holiness because we, before God, stand before God with the imputed perfection of Christ covering us. God doesn't see me. He sees Christ. And I can approach him in confidence knowing that he sees Jesus. That perspective changes the way that you live life. He points out the superiority of the new covenant by saying that we will live in righteousness. That means that as Christians, now we have the ability to obey God. We have a new nature. We have an empowerment that gives us the ability to serve God, not because we have to or because there's an expectation, but because we want to, because our nature has been changed. This is good news that Zechariah preached. But how was he able to understand? If my first point was to believe the gospel, my second point is this. In order to have gospel clarity, we not only need to believe the gospel, we secondly, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Zechariah could not have had the understanding that he had if he had not been filled with the Spirit. Look at verse 67. Before he speaks, he says, his father, Zechariah, was what? Filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. He had this understanding of the gospel. He had gospel clarity because he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what Luke is doing here, by the way, to, to look at the, the, the perspective of the author, Luke is introducing us here to a major character in the writing that, that is to come. Don't forget, Luke wrote Acts 2. It's one book, Luke Acts, okay? And, and when he, he is talking about the Spirit filling here, this is, this is a concept that will carry all the way through the book of Acts, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the one that is responsible for allowing us to have gospel clarity. You cannot achieve it on your own. It's not just a matter of, ah, I just need to have gospel clarity. 
Like, no, Holy Spirit, I need you to bring gospel clarity. You need to be filled. Not once, not like the Pentecostals believe that you get saved and then all of a sudden you have to have a second baptism and then you're good for the rest of your life. That's not true. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, you'd never get saved in the first place. You get the Holy Spirit and then you continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit all throughout your life. You wake up in the morning, you say, Holy Spirit, I need you today because I need to live in gospel clarity and if you don't come in, I don't have it. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit daily. We don't, we don't like the Holy Spirit in Christianity for some reason, unless we're Pentecostals, right? We, just, we get awkward about it. Oh, he's talking about the Holy Spirit thing. I'm all for Jesus, all for the Father, Holy Spirit. That just gets weird. Is he going to start speaking in tongues? Are you going to tell me what I'm going to do in 20 years or what I had for breakfast? That's not the point. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to exalt Christ. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to reveal Christ to you, just like he did to Zechariah right here. He allowed him to see beyond his scope, to transcend from his Old Testament view into a new covenant. Man, that's the power we need. That's the clarity we need. We have to ask him to come, continually seek to be filled. The Holy Spirit is our power to minister to each other. He's our peace in trials. He's our precision in understanding the person of Christ. He's our passion for God's glory, our prayer partner, our protector from the evil one. He's everything. Jesus said, it's better that I go so the Holy Spirit can come and that you can live out of gospel clarity together as a family. Number three, and we'll close on this one, you need to be emptied of yourself. So gospel clarity comes not only by believing the gospel, not only by being filled with the Spirit, but thirdly, by being emptied of yourself. You like how I did all those Bs? Took me a long time to think of all those. Be emptied of yourself. Take a look at verse 76. In this prophecy at one point, um, Zechariah begins to unpack what's going to happen with this son of his, John the Baptist, okay? He says in verse 76, he says, you, child, who? John the Baptist. And you, John the Baptist, this is so cool, as a father prophesying about his son and what his son's going to do. It's so cool. You, child, you, John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. What is the primary calling of John the Baptist? To go before the Lord, to prepare his ways. In order to get gospel clarity, we have to let go of something, and it's something we love very much. It's ourself. In order to be filled with the Spirit, we have to make space by get, getting rid of something, and that is ourself. In order for the Spirit to fill us, we have to make room. <laughs> and to make room, we have to say, God, I'm done with myself, and I'm ready to be filled with you. Why was John the Baptist the greatest man in the, in the world? Jesus said that. Obviously, Jesus was the greatest man, but different category, okay? The greatest man, not God incarnate, the greatest man on the earth was Jesus, it was John the Baptist. Why was he the greatest man? Because he said something like this, I must decrease so that you can increase. John the Baptist, like his father, Zechariah, lived in gospel clarity because he knew he wasn't the point. He knew it wasn't about him, man. It wasn't about him, and he knew it. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit because his ministry was to proclaim Christ. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, proclaim Christ. You want to be filled with the Spirit, empty of yourself. 
Holy Spirit doesn't come into a room so that people can do crazy things and feel like they have some kind of magical powers. The Holy Spirit comes into a room to proclaim Christ when we empty ourselves of ourselves. That was what John the Baptist did. Let me tell you about John the Baptist, man. This guy was amazing. He was a powerful man of God. He stepped onto the scene after living out in the wilderness for years. He stepped onto the scene and thousands of people came out to hear this guy. And thousands of people repented. He had a mega church overnight. He was a prolific and powerful speaker, calling people to the repentance of God, laying the way for the Messiah to come. And you know what he did? Once he gathered all these people up, he gave them to Jesus. He gave them his disciples. He gave them his core leaders. Gave them his staff. Gave them his building. Gave them the keys. Said, here you go, Jesus. It's yours. That's the Holy Spirit, man. Because <laughs> if that was a man, he would have said, nope, it's mine. These are my people. Don't sheep steal, right? My church. It's not what he did. He gave it over. You know what he did after that? He went to prison. And then he lost his head. That was his ministry. You know how long his ministry was? It's about six months. Six months. Greatest man that ever lived ministered for six months. Had nothing to show for it and lost his head in prison. I'm not going to get many people that way. <laughs> Jesus calls us to come and die. That is the calling. To empty ourselves of ourselves. To give over this life and to say, okay. Like John the Baptist, it's all about Christ. Take my church, take my people, take my worth, take my head. It's all yours. It's all yours. Gospel clarity comes when we lay aside ourselves and we say, okay, Lord. Okay, it's all about you. I'm ready to embrace the finished work of Christ. And you can do that. You can empty yourself not only just by exalting Christ, but also by empowering other people. Um, one thing I love about this, back to Zechariah, is, is here he is, you know, it's the greatest day of his life, and all he has to show for it is something about someone else. The, the angel comes and tells him this truth, and, and it has nothing to do with Zechariah, it has everything to do with his son. Hey, Zechariah, guess what? God's going to do a great work through your son. And no one's really going to remember who you are except for John's dad. That's who you're going to be. You're going to be John's dad. Are you okay with that? And because he was okay with that, it took him a while, because he was okay with that, he had gospel clarity to say, it's not about me. It's about what my son is going to do, and what my son is going to do is ultimately about what Jesus is going to do. If you want to know what level of gospel clarity you have, <laughs> just look at how much you invest in other people's success rather than your own. How much time do you spend thinking about how to prop other people up, how to give other people opportunities, how to love other people? That's kingdom mindset. That's gospel clarity. Andy Stanley said this. He said, the greatest thing you accomplish in life may not be something you do, but someone you raise. That just kind of blew my mind. I'm like, oh, maybe I won't do something earth shattering, but maybe one of my kids will. Or maybe someone who, who you know, who's here. Maybe someone who, who raises up will do better and greater things than I ever will. Am I okay with that? Gospel clarity says, I don't care. As long as God is honored, that's what Zachariah said. 
He said, you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John the Baptist, you are gonna bring light to people that have been sitting in the dark for hundreds of years. And it is gonna thaw their frozen hearts like you would not believe. You are gonna make way for the one that will bring salvation and bring freedom. When my heart becomes free and my shame is undone, I love the line of that song, man. My heart becomes free because my shame is undone. That is the gospel, that is the work that the gospel will do. And I just wanna ask you guys, are you tired of living out of your own sufficiency? Are you ready to admit that you do not have what it takes? And are you ready to live out of the finished work of Christ for his glory and step into his story and his plan and set aside your life for him? Because he is greater. Are you ready to be healed from your gospel deficiency? This doesn't look like a one-time thing. This looks like an every second thing. You guys have to choose when you walk out of here, when you get in your car, when you drive home, when you get up and go to work tomorrow. Are you going to live in a way that you believe the gospel? Or are you gonna continue to live under the law? It's your choice. It's already been finished. It's already been accomplished. It's up to you whether you're going to live in the light of it. And as Christians, that is our calling. Our calling is to live in response to the finished, finished work of the cross. Amen? So I want you guys to ask yourselves that question. Am I currently living in the state of chronic gospel deficiency, or am I living in a state of gospel clarity? And I'll be honest with you guys, man, I got a whole lot more gospel deficiency than I do gospel clarity. Very few moments of gospel clarity, but I am ready to work towards there's the word, work. I'm ready to, to do everything I can to embrace a reality that has been done for me. Amen? Let's all stand, guys. Father, we just declare that you're enough. We declare that your, your, your atonement, your cross is enough. We pray that you would release us from our longing to want to work for the gospel and that we would just believe it, that we would embrace it. Father, I thank you for the story uh, of Zachariah and John the Baptist, and I thank you so much, Lord, for how you bring gospel clarity. We know that, that you've done that for us at one point. That's why we're here. That's why we're, we're saved. We pray you would continue to do that by the Holy Spirit all through our life, that we might stand before you having lived a life that was in full thanksgiving to what you've done for us. God, it's all... It's all you. Thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have visited us through Christ. We embrace it. We believe it.